Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trifle as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hello, I'm Mark Trichel, and you are listening to With Flying Colors, the podcast where I interview subject matter experts to provide credit union leaders with tips on how you can achieve success with NCUA and pass your exam with flying colors. Today, I'm joined by Vin Veaton, who previously was on to talk about credit culture. Today, Vin and I are going to talk about financial analysis, credit proposals, and a philosophical discussion on global cash flow. And of course, all three of these relate to commercial lending or member business lending. Vin, before we jump in, for people who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and your career and your experience at NCUA? Sure. Good morning, Mark and everyone. Yeah, I was the senior credit specialist at the NCUA for about 11 years. I retired last February. And prior to that, I had actually worked for a concrete company as controller, managing the banking relationships. And then prior to that, I was a senior loan officer in some community banks in New England. So I've been able to experience lending from the lender's point perspective, the borrower's perspective, and then as a regulator. So I've all three of those experiences were just great to give me to give me and confirm my perspective on the importance of commercial lending and supporting your borrower's needs. Very good. Yeah. So Vin, you've really it from every angle. So you have a very unique perspective. You've applied for business loans when you were at the concrete company. Yeah. You reviewed business loans when you were at the bank, and then you wrote regulation and guidance at NCUA as the regulator. So you really touched it all, which again, really provides you with a perspective that not many people out there have. So let's jump in. Let's, uh, let's talk about financial analysis as it relates to commercial lending. And Vin, the floor is yours. The financial analysis and credit approval document are really the most, are very important pieces of commercial lending. Of course, the financial analysis allows you to understand the financial strength and condition of the borrower. And then the credit approval documents, the loan request and support for the credit decision. And the financial analysis, we did find there was many different approaches to financial analysis in the credit union industry. So when the rule was rewritten five years ago, we emphasize the importance of consistent and accurate financial analysis. You'll find in the preamble to the proposed rule, and Mark, you will have links to these documents, correct? Yes. So I will put thing that you think needs to be put in the show notes. I can link to the show notes for the show. So someone wants to go to that link, they can find it. There will also be a transcript of our interview on my website, marktrichel.com, which will also have the link. There'll be two, then the two important links that I'd like people to reference 
would be the link to the examiner's guide regarding financial analysis and the credit approval document. And then also to two or three pages in the preamble to the proposed rule, which was issued in July of 2015. Though it's a few years back, it's still the standard that the board, the NCOA board set as expectations for financial analysis and risk assessment. Let me pause you right there. So you're referencing the preamble to the rule. The preamble often is almost more revealing than the actual regulation because it tells you what staff was thinking and more importantly, what the board was thinking. So it can actually provide examples that credit unions can look to and apply to the regulation and really understand what was meant by the words that are in the regulation. Even though what we're going to reference is the proposed rule, the language, that's something that you can look to to make sure that you're complying with the intent of what NCUA is thinking and what the board was thinking at that time. Yes, exactly. And the reason why the proposed rule is acceptable in this case, there's a two-step process, as I think most people are aware of. You propose a rule, there's reaction from the stakeholders, and then there's a final rule. The proposed rule that we issued did not change very much and not in a material way. Therefore, any of the discussion that you'll find in the proposed rule generally still applies and was the intent of the board and the staff. It's very important, especially in this case, the proposed rule will out and in the other sections of the rule too, and it does, it explains very well what the board expectations were. In fact, I always find the proposed preamble more insightful because the preamble to the final rule generally is just comments from stakeholders and reactions from the agency, but the actual specific instructions and intent are generally better, especially in this case, outlined in the proposed rule. And that's a great point. So if the proposal, if the final rule is similar to the proposal, you're going to find more meat in the proposed preamble in a situation where there was a material change that the board made in the final rule, that preamble might have a little bit more meat, but I never really thought of it that way that the proposal probably has more meat. So that's a good thing. to. Yeah, sure. And again, one one of the problems with preambles are is nobody knows where to find them. So we're hoping to make this a little bit easier for you by establishing a link on the website for you to just click on. You're good at finding them. And Steve Farr is good at finding them. Another person who helps me on topics other than commercial lending. Although actually he helped me on a commercial lending project that you and I were working on for a client. But yeah, it's they're not the easiest things to find. But once you find the tricks of how to do it, they are out there. And we again, we will post them in the show notes so that you can see what Ben's referring to. So what else on financial a- analysis? Is there? It should be well-organized, Mark. And that's and a, and a structured approach that all lenders hopefully follow. Now, every deal is different, so you do have to be able to amend it and as you need to based on the borrower. But I always found in my financial analysis, you want to, you're looking to establish what are the trends of the business, really? What are the, for all the financial strength of the business, but mostly the trends of the business. So you're going to need a reasonable amount of financial performance. And that means the how many years back are you going to take a look at the financial performance? The standard is three years worth of activity plus current financial information for that year, the current year. However, uh, that, of, of course, you can only, if it's only been in business for two years, you can only get two years worth. But 
sometimes you may need more than that and use your judgment to what's sufficient, but ultimately you should be able to establish the trend that a business, the financial trends of that business. You're going to, that's going to lead to following the financial analysis. You're going to have a debt service ability, which is some type of cash flow analysis. You can use traditional cash flow. You can use UCA, which is uniform credit analysis, two, two different methods of, and there's other methods of cash flow, but be careful if you, whatever you choose to, lo- to use, make sure that you understand the, what it's, what the analysis is telling you, and also that it accu- accurately represents that borrower's ability to service the debt. I know with the UCA cash flow that that does a good job of establishing some influence and changes on the balance sheet, which should not just be listed, but understood what's causing those changes. There should be income and expense trend discussed. And again, balance sheet changes, like I just mentioned, and the borrower should have a satisfactory payment history. So when looking at... The analysis I always, and, and this is my personal preference, how you just make, I think the important thing is that it's consistent. I always looked at the income statement first to see what the trend is in, in revenue, then look at the gross profit trends, expense trends, and then net profit trends, and then look at those influences on the balance sheet, and then did a discussion on the balance sheet. So I think it's very important that the lending institution has a consistent approach and logical approach to the way they approach their credit analysis. So Ben, as you're talking, I'm thinking of some of the conversations we've had with my clients who have had some commercial lending and were wanting, wanting to improve their processes for their members and also to satisfy NCUA. And I'm thinking of a couple of examples where you talked about when you look at this financial analysis, like owner draws or owner influxes of cash into the business. And I, I remember some interesting conversations where owners were having to put money in. And as you were looking at a particular credit, what that meant to you. Do you remember that situation? Is there any color you can add to, to, to what I just threw? Uh, yeah, I, yes, I will. But I just thought of something else as you said that. Mark, it's re- what's, I went to work at a bank as a senior lender, and the lenders all had different approaches to, and no structure, and then we'll talk about that a little bit more in the credit proposal, but no structure to their presentation or their approach to financial analysis. So I would read these write-ups, and I'd have to read them two or three times to get a sense of what the quality of the financial analysis was, and usually... I had to do my own financial analysis and the way I think about it in order to get a sense whether it was a good deal or, or not. And but what I what was what I learned from that is boy, it really dependent on who your lender is on whether you get proper financing or not. Because each lender had their a separate approach to analysis. So if you have a consistent approach it's going to do a number of things. It's going to first make sure that you're fair to all your borrowers and they're all being looked at in a consistent and accurate way. It's going to help train those individuals at the financial institution, the credit union, such as the board, and maybe some of the other senior management who are involved with commercial lending, but not 
well-versed in commercial lending, they'll be trained in how to look at a credit. So it's important that consistency and completeness, comp uh, the comprehensive review is really fair to the borrower and also to those involved with making that credit decision. Yeah, and it's it, I, there's, there was a number of, you, you see sometimes that the cash flows are, are documented, but there was no, no attention paid to the balance sheet. And the balance sheet, had the, the leverage had increased over the year and the money went out to the borrower through a stockholder loan. So it's important that you tie the two together. I like to, I always like to look at the income and expense trends and then whatever that cash flow, net cash flow number is, where does it show up in the balance sheet? Is it being funded from receivables reduction, inventory reduction, or an increase in debt, or is it being funded through the proper operations of the business. So there's a lot to think about when you bring those together. And do you bring the balance sheet? The balance sheet is especially important when there's activity in the working assets of the business, meaning usually a manufacturer, you're going to see inventory and receivables change significantly. And some people are, it's really not that important when you're looking at rental real estate because they just collect rents and there's generally not much balance sheet activity. But as you said, Mark, again, there should be some discussion of the balance sheet in every financial analysis because things can be happening on even more straightforward cash flow businesses like rental real estate, especially if they have a receivable, their receivables are increasing in their more than 30 days. That means they're not getting paid. So it's really important that there's some reasonable check to the balance sheet and then and any changes to the balance sheet if it's within reason and in line with the income statement. Got it. So Ben, I as you talk through that, I had two takeaways. Getting the financial analysis, it's not just a paper exercise. It, you have to understand what those documents or financial statements say, how it flows through and what that right. means, good or bad for the borrower. And then the other thing is a Word that, words that came to mind were standard operating procedures. Right. You need some consistency within the organization so that if I walk into loan officer A versus loan officer B, that essentially the result should be the same because we have such good procedures and policies and standard operating procedures that the members all get treated the same. Exactly. That's exactly it. And this is, as we've talked about in the credit culture, discussion. Lending, commercial lending is a value-added business. It needs qualified people to evaluate the borrower's ability because be, there are so many influences on a business. The lender needs to be, needs to be well-qualified and capable of understanding those changes in the business. And th that's the value-added piece. I always felt, and I think it should be explained to borrowers, once a year, hopefully you're visiting your borrowers at least once a year, that borrower for free, really their interest payment, gets a financial expert to do a thorough review of their business. And that's really a very important service you can offer to your members and your borrowers. And 
to follow up, it's really important then that if there are problems in your analysis, or you recognize some problems with the business in your analysis, to share those observations with the borrower. And obviously, that's going to be much and said in a polite and respectful way, but help that borrower understand where there's some areas in their business and financial performance that they should be addressing. And again, like I said, so once a year, that borrower will get a financial review of their business by a financial expert. I think that's a pretty good value-added service. That's great, Vin. Very well said. And you reminded me, uh, so back when I was an examiner and a problem case officer, I did get a little bit of expertise on member business lending, at least on par for what we knew of back then. And one of the things I used to do when I went in to do a commercial loan review, other than getting a sample of loans to look at, I would get it, I would ask them to show me a handful of loans that they had denied, which was telling. It, you can see something on a denial. And in some instances, when I asked that question, they'd only approved loans. That also gave me some intel, potentially, as I was doing the exam relative to the risk. Great discussion on financial analysis. Anything else on this before we jump into credits? You brought up denials. And I think that's another great area where you can provide this expertise to that member. Hopefully they are a member or they're going to become a member. To explain to that, I was just to explain my denials to the bar for two reasons. The first make sure I didn't miss anything and give them an opportunity to react to the reasons for the denial, but also to help educate them on how they should position their business to be in a, to be in a better position to borrow from, at that time I was working at a bank. And the same would apply for credit unions. I think you're doing them a real service if you take the time, not just send a declination letter, but if they're important to you and they're already members of your credit union, take the time to explain why you made your decision and what you would need to see in order to approve a loan in the future. Got it. Got it. All right. So let's jump into credit proposals. Right. What would you like to share relative to credit proposals? It's very similar comments. Make sure it's well organized and consistent. Again, if you go to the guidance, the examiner's guidance, which you'll be able to click on, it does a real good job of explaining how important a standard logical format is, again, for what we had talked about earlier, to make sure there's a consistent view in your your credit culture or approving credit and your approach to credit. But when it's well-organized, I think let's just talk about some of the important things that should be included in the proposal. And again, there's a sequence outlined in the guidance. I think it makes sense. Obviously, I was involved with writing it, and it's the way I used to approach the organization of my proposals, but these are things that are important to have in your credit proposal, but doesn't have to follow this specific order. Uh, But I think if you see the order, it makes sense. And the first section should discuss who the borrower is, explain the ownership structure, the type of business it is, the number of employees, what they do to produce revenue products and services offered, who their customers are. Uh, how long they've been in business? Are there any concentrations of sales with the limited number of customers? Uh, do they ha- are they dependent on 
just a few suppliers. These are all things that are not all these need to be explained in the write-up, but things you should be thinking about when you're evaluating the credit, who the principals are, the management discuss management's abilities and structure, discussion of the industry they're in and the repayment ability and of the borrower along with, and it's real important here. The next thing that the guidance asks for is the relationship between the entities. And that's really important and very important when we discuss philosophically uh, global cash flow. So it's important to understand who the principals are and any entities they own and how the, all these entities inter, interrelate to each other. And how do you get that information? That's visiting the borrower and spending some time walking through their facilities and their operation and getting to know them over time. So Another you, thing, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Mark, go, that's fine. So when you were at the bank, in your time at the, the bank serving as a loan officer, what was the long-term relationship that you had with some of the borrowers at that bank? Some, there, there was 10-year relationships. And then prior to that, they had already been with the bank. So they stayed there. They recognized the value. Hopefully, they recognized that value you add as an experienced lender and how important that is to their business. And they don't always shop for the lowest rate, but any business will is probably loyalties up to 50 basis points after that, it's going to, you're competing against price. Sure. And but I think it's very important that they trust you and know that you care about their business and take the time to make the recommendations and structure their loans that's in their best interest. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And another section on the, I did not see this a, a lot in credit unions, but I did see it and I worked for a number of banks in the crazy 90s. But in most of the bank credit proposals, they had a section listing all direct and related debt. And as the CUA restricts the total relationship of associated members to 15% or any one relationship to not exceed 15% of the credit union's net worth. So instead of having others calculate that, I believe it's up to the lender to list that so that the approving bodies, whether that's senior manager or the credit committee or the board, sees the total relationship and understands the total level of risk associated with that borrower. So it's a regulatory requirement under 723.4C. Therefore, it makes sense to list that either on the front page of the credit proposal or a separate schedule but that should be very clear what the total relationship is and considered as part of the credit approval. So I don't I believe it's a requirement for a credit proposal. And like I said, often you don't see that summary of the relationship on the credit proposal. Got it. And so, yeah, so NCUA would like to see that because it shows that the thought process went in and that you are aware of the materiality as it relates to the member and also to the balance sheet of the credit union. Sure. And the board should care because it could be a violation of a reg. That's serious, as we know. It's not a safety and well, safety and soundness is important, but it's a direct regulatory requirement. Therefore, I, it should be confirmed on with each appro approval that it's within the regulation. Makes sense. Yeah.
So I pulled up the link that you provided me that we're going to put in the show notes. And as I'm looking at it, I see a reference to the document assigning an appropriate risk rating. Is that some, is risk rating something that you want to talk to relative to credit proposals or is that a few podcast in and of itself? I think that's a future podcast, but again, that's important that the risk rating be assigned as part of the credit proposal and also justified. So it should require that it's rated a four and for the following reasons. It doesn't have to be long, but it has to be clear why it's being rated at that level. And I'm glad you brought that up, Mark. Often credit proposal has a cover page and a lot of what we've talked about, that sort of that justification should probably be on the front page as so the reader then knows what the risk rate is, the level of risk associated with that credit. I think a summary of the relationship that we just talked about is important to have on the front page. And another thing that's important to have on that front page is any exceptions to policy. And again, a brief explanation why it's an exception to why it's an acceptable exception to policy. And what that does, if the cover page has important information like that, then the reader, as they review the cover page, they're gonna they're gonna have a good sense for the deal, the risk associated with the deal, and if there are those policy exceptions. You don't want somebody to read something on page two. And, and say, hey, wait, that's a policy exception. And then not explain what it is for another two pages when you get into the financial section and because they've just read two pages saying, hey, what else is wrong with this credit? Lay out all those issues on that front page with a summary justification, I think sets the reader up to better understand that credit as they read through it. Yeah, that makes good sense. I wrote down exceptions to policy. I think that might be something we can expand on at a later date as well. Uh, Again, there's a lot of nuances to commercial lending. And in a podcast like this, we can't go into every piece of it, but I think we're going to be digging down over time, taking on some of the individually. So very good. Go ahead. Yeah, right, Mark. We can't get into everything on a podcast, but if we've got the right references that the listeners can click uh, into, I think that would be helpful. You got it. And at the end too, I'll give my contact information where they can reach out if they have particular questions on some of these things as well. So very good. So let's segue and have a philosophical discussion on global cash flow. What is right. it and what is it and why is it important? Obviously, you and the way we say it in, in the rule is to see if there are any other influences on the borrower or the guarantor that could influence. The, the the entity that you're lending to. It's so much can happen. The interrelationship between companies uh, is very important. And you need to know what the stresses are on the guarantor, because obviously, if they've got other operations that are stressed, they may need the help from your borrower, and that could eventually impact the borrower. So overall, you need to know that overall risk associated with that credit and other entities, related entities could be some of those risks. So how deep do you go really depends on the complexity and the level of risk associated with the transaction. If you have a large loan, 
and there are other businesses similar, and there's movement between those companies, you need to analyze each company. There's, like I said, philosophically, there's many different approaches. Me personally, when I was analyzing loans, I always wanted to know those related entities. I didn't want to just take K-1 information. I wanted to know exactly how well they were operating. I generally, at the very least, asked for tax returns for those related entities and then also get a debt schedule. So instead of just seeing distributions and profit, did an actual cash flow analysis to see how much, if those businesses were under stress or not. And then once all that analysis is done, you have to, and again, this is up to the institution, find some way to bring it all together so you can have a reliable evaluation of the global cash flow and global coverage. So Bill, let me give you an example. So you've got a member, let's say new member, they come in, they apply, they want to buy a rental, a home for rental. And they have 15 other rental properties in the same city. And this is the first, they're new to the credit union. This is the first time they've come to see you. And they might have these 15 rental companies all set up in their own LLCs. I know a lot of times people will do that. So they come in, they apply for the one loan, they say it's $100,000 and I'm going to put 30% down and it should cash flow. And you're looking at it saying that's great, but in that scenario, what's the but? What would it, you're putting your loan officer hat back on, what would you expect to see from where you sit? And then obviously, as it relates to the NCUA regulation on member business loans. You're going to have a guarantor most likely, hopefully, because <laughs> although it's not specifically required, it's implied that each loan be guaranteed. So you're going to need to know what those influences are on the guarantor that could impact, again, like I said earlier, that could add some stress to their operations. Are there other businesses that they have that are not as successful as your borrower and then can those the, those, the needs of those other businesses uh, will a guarantor need to take that from your borrower. So you got to be careful that you understand the relationship between all the borrowers and then, then properly structure the loan uh, to protect your borrower. And if I'm not saying that you don't do business with a borrower whose guarantor has some other stresses, but if there are other stresses and the global will t- tell you this, you may want to structure your loan a little differently and add some covenants to restrict disbursements uh, and distribution from your borrower. And so that, that's a one reason for global cash flow. So you can properly structure your borrower to protect them. And other reasons are obviously, is this borrower a house of cards? And if it's a house of cards, you may not, even though the, not the borrower so much, the overall relationship is at a house of cards, including, including the guarantor, you may want to limit or not get involved because the rest of the, the operation is very stressed. Yeah, I think that's the essence of the global cash flow. This particular deal may cash flow, but if other businesses that are owned 
by that borrower not positively cash flowing, what happens to the entirety of it, which is the global cash flow. And, and getting back to the philosophical part of this market, so there's a lot of articles on global cash flow, and I ask people to go out and research it themselves. But ultimately, it shouldn't be done for the sake of the NCUA. Nothing ever should be done for the sake of the NCUA. It should be done to evaluate the risk that you're taking on your credit union's balance sheet. And that's what should drive the extent of the analysis. However, can't ignore the reg because it's a regulation and you have to follow those specific things the reg requires. But what I always used to tell credit unions and when I used to speak, I'd tell them I first always do a thorough risk assessment of the borrower and the borrower's relationships. Make your decision based on that, then check the reg to see if you've complied. And I think if you've done your job and you're complete, reg compliance will not be an issue. So always focus on, do I really understand this borrower? Do I really know what's going on with the guarantor? What do I need to do to understand the guarantor's relationships and the relationship and the risks associated with that relationship? That's what should be driving you, not to comply with or making the examiner happy. Do it for your own because it's ultimately beyond issues with an exam. The real issue, is this a risky transaction and is it too risky for for us to finance? Sure. Is it good for the credit union? Is it good for the borrower? And then NQA isn't always should be secondary or even last on that list. You want to comply with the regulation, but you're not serving NCUA, you're serving the bank. And it is... It gets com- it gets very complicated global how far you should go. And I, this is not the forum to decide what's appropriate and what's not. It's really just to discuss what you should be thinking about for a, an operating company that has a separate real estate holding company. And maybe the guarantor has a couple of rental properties. Those are pretty easy to bring together. It's when you get into those large real estate transactions where there's multiple entities. And those are the hard ones to decide how deep do I go? And the answer is uh, deep enough to fully understand the risk associated with your transaction. So the so it sounds like a legal answer. So the answer is it depends on the the, the full body of work of we were, sometimes you've got a good borrower you've done business with for years. They summarize their whole operation and send you cash flows and other information. I, if you're going to accept something like that, I do recommend that maybe you test a few of them just so you can say this is reliable information and because we know the borrower obviously and he's they've always performed as agreed and also did some additional due diligence and we checked a few of them and they were accurate so we're going to assume that the rest of this information is accurate it all again it depends on your relationship the complexity of the relationship think about it and make sure that when you step back that you're comfortable, that you've covered and fully understand the risk associated with the transaction. Got it. Got it. So Vin, before we wrap up, I want to push back on one thing you said that may have caught some attention. And you said that guarantees are implied. The regulation doesn't indicate that they're required. So I believe in the old days, you could actually ask for waivers relative to that. It was my understanding under the new rule that it's nice to have, but not a need. And defining need as the regulation required it, there are situations and the regulation 
does allow for there not to be a guarantee. Am I correct in what I just said? Yes, but if the way it's written, and I don't have it in front of me right now, Mark, but essentially what it says is if you do not get a guarantee, then you need to document the reasons why it's the reasons that offset the risk of not having a guarantee. So it says if you do not get a guarantee. So that implies you should start by getting the guarantee. But if you do not get the guarantee, then you've got to have good reason. They all need to be documented in the credit proposal. Said another way, default should be, yes, we are going to get guarantees. And on occasion, we won't. And when we don't, we'll have a really good reason and we will document that. As opposed to default is we don't get guarantees and on occasion we will get guarantees. Yeah. And it was interesting because the reaction was that, well, you don't need guarantees anymore. Oh, yes, you do. But if you don't get one, we don't have to go through a waiver process. Essentially, you document in your credit proposal what you would have had you been requesting that waiver for the guarantee. So there's got to be good reasons. Obviously, the borrower has got a strong balance sheet got good cash flow, been in business for a while, all that kind of stuff. And those are the types of reasons you need to waive the guarantee. But one reason you can't waive is one reason that's not appropriate is because the competition doesn't want one. Okay, right? great. Excellent. We don't want you going over the cliff with the rhythm. Makes sense. So Vin, let's wrap this up. This was great. I want to thank you for being my guest today. Everybody, that's it for today. I'm Mark Treichel, and I hope you join me again next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 